Welcome to the Classic Speeches Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, bringing you treasured talks from 70 years of BYU devotionals. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I want my own remarks to be something of an extension of Sister Holland's. I, too, wish to speak to you about our life and our love together as a community, a community bound together with strong ties and common concerns. The quality of your life here, your happiness and your success and your well-being, is constantly on my mind. Certainly it is as we start another school year together. Pat and I want you to be comfortable. We want to know you. We want to be friends. We want you to succeed. We do love you very, very much. Life at BYU is part of a rather large and important experiment in latter-day Christian living. It might even be considered a kind of united order. Surely you are a select group, and as with those pioneer experiments in communal living in Orderville or Brigham City or elsewhere, we are terribly dependent upon each other. The idea is, as I understand it, that we'll live and work very closely together, helping each other, and in the process nudge the institution just that much closer to the ideal university Brigham Young University must be. A university full of scholar saints, young and old, who care very much about each other. We want BYU to be at least a little like heaven must be a lot. Hell, on the other hand, says T.S. Eliot's poem, is oneself. Hell is experienced alone. There is nothing to escape from and nothing to escape to. In hell, one is always alone." Close quote. Now, except for those moments of solitude we all expect and wish for, I am anxious that no one feel needlessly alone at BYU. And in the few minutes I have with you, I hope to suggest a meaning there that goes significantly beyond the mere disappointments of loneliness. I am reaching for a special meaning of friendship, and to the extent that I have either a text or a title, it is taken from the Apocrypha. A faithful friend is a strong defense, and he that hath found one hath found a treasure. I speak to you friend to friend. Last Saturday, three days ago, David McNeese, Jr. was buried. He was 22. He had been married just three weeks. One week ago today, he was standing in the Washington Street Station waiting for a Boston subway train to arrive when another man, screaming, abusive, and obviously very drunk, entered the station, walked to the edge of the platform, and fell onto the tracks. Instantly, and I assume instinctively, 22-year-old, newly married, responsible David McNeese jumped down on the track to help. In that instant, the train came out of the tunnel. McNeese frantically waved his arms, and then, as one observer described it to the press, it was over so quickly. Not surprisingly, the drunken, abusive, fallen man survived the experience quite nicely. And as they buried David McNeese, everyone who knew this young couple called it so needlessly, selfishly senseless. 
What does that have to do with your first day at school? Nothing, really. And then maybe again, everything. Sister Holland mentioned in her remarks some of the invitations I've had recently to speak and tell the BYU story. A rather constant theme in those public speeches has been our commitment to the virtues and values, purposes that have always mattered at universities and in civilized societies, purposes that certainly matter at Brigham Young University. They include, among a host of other things, courage and honor, honesty and integrity. They include good taste and careful speech and hard work. They include sensitivity and spirituality and an appreciation for both art and nature. They include a love of learning and a sense of progression and a sense of peace. They include an awareness of culture and tradition and history, especially history marking what time has shown to be the better way. Why speak of such virtues and values? Well, I happen to be one who thinks BYU has a good deal to say about them to a world that may be losing at least some of them. Furthermore, espousing them is part of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. So for several of my first months here, two years ago, I wrestled with what my highest personal tasks ought to be in relationship to those principles. I finally isolated four, made them the major goals of my administration, and went before the faculty and staff the next fall in our annual university conference, telling them what my hopes were and why I thought BYU was a pearl of great price, a gem worth putting on national display. I then shared at least the spirit of those ideas in this assembly with you last year and began in earnest to do all I could to accomplish just four things, to encourage our quest for truth as a university of the first rank, to reinforce our commitment to basic moral values in a university whose light must have a special glow, to tell the BYU story wherever and whenever possible and to extend the sense of community that we have always felt here. Those were and are my four personal tasks as I see them in my part of the BYU mission. Well, some things have worked well, some things haven't worked so well, and of course the task goes on. A lot of days have been fairly long, a few nights have been pretty short, but I've loved it deeply, and Sister Holland has loved it, and our children have loved it within reason. And a lot of other friends on this campus have loved it and have done these things better and longer than the Hollands will ever be able. But we believe in the task and have been blessed immensely and are anxious to do a better job. And from time to time, others around the country have expressed interest in our efforts. Nothing earth-shaking because nothing very earth-shaking was going on, but interest, often genuine interest, in BYU's desire to be a very good university and I intend that adjective to apply with every possible interpretation. Well, after two years of doing what little we were capable of, usually right here on campus but occasionally in some outside setting, the syndicated services of the Los Angeles Times chose to run a rather complimentary column on BYU's view of these matters of truth and virtue. Perhaps some of you saw it. The story appeared coast to coast. The, story, the copy I saw appeared here on April 21st. Two days later, on Commencement Day, April 23, 1982, these stories appeared in a United Press International release disseminated at least as widely. Even as we marched, robed and hooded, to our graduation exercises, the headlines read, 
Four Y students charged with fake document fraud. Y students arraigned on license scam. And so on and so on and so on. By referring to this incident, I do not want to cause anyone any more pain than too many have already felt. I do not use the names of the students involved. I hope you do not even know their names. I would not embarrass them or their parents or you. That is not my purpose. Remember, I am speaking friend to friend. But perhaps enough time has gone by that, at least in the abstract, we can use the lesson it offers as a group of people who have chosen to live together for a time. Virtus et Veritas was the falsifying of government documents. I am reading from the press release verbatim was the falsifying of government documents in connection with a highly sophisticated driver license forgery scam operating out of one of the university's dormitories, close quote, was that either virtuous or truthful? Oh, there's a Latin phrase for it, but it isn't virtus et veritas. And what of the 67 individuals known to have ordered the false identification documents? showing those in possession to be 21 years of age when they were not. What need would exist for 67 students on this campus to own a fake ID? Is it that tough ticket taker at the varsity theater? Is it the dispenser of Y Sparkle at the Cougar Eat? If a Y student's life is getting that tough, we better issue fake IDs to everyone. Perhaps it's the new football stadium. Perhaps there are no seats for any under 21. <laughs> to students admitted here on their honor, I cannot imagine any other reasons for needing to be 21. And what are the rest of the students in those rooms and on those halls and in those dormitories? Was everyone's education yet so paltry that not one had ever heard Edmund Burke's dictum, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing? Did anyone within 45 miles of Hinckley Hall have any pangs of guilt or whisper of conscience knowing that a felony was being committed in facilities paid for and maintained by the tithing dollars of widows and the fatherless. And there we sat in graduation exercises, speaking of truth and virtue. It is no wonder to me that God once said to ancient Israel, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Let me cite one other disappointment and then leave this whole subject. I don't like it any better than you do. Sometime during our life together last year, a very angry and disappointed father called me about his daughter's off-campus living situation. She had at least one roommate who apparently thought her boyfriend should be entitled to spend the night on the couch whenever the evening's weariness overtook him, and apparently most evenings he was overtaken. <laughs> After all, there was nothing really wrong here. It was a little inconvenient in an apartment of girls, but there were walls and doors and robes, and he could pretty much be left alone. Well, I say to this Rip Van Winkle of Riviera or Raintree or wherever, <laughs> and to his girlfriend and to her roommates, men do not sleep in women's apartments if either said man or woman wants to remain at Brigham Young University.
Not on the couch, not in the kitchen, not on the floor, not entwined around five-gallon cans containing the next year's supply of whole wheat. <laughs> no one has to be a four-point student to understand that, including the roommates who put up with it. Now I speak of these unsavory issues and leave them. And I do so not to sensationalize mistakes or to rule out the repentance that every one of us will need to call upon forever. I think if this had not been so recent and so devastating to me, I certainly would not choose to begin a New Year's greeting to you this way. I'm certainly not pointing publicly at any individuals, and I'm certainly not inviting you to do so. But what I do want to stress, and this now can be more positive, what I do want to stress on this very first day of the school year is the nature of the covenant society we form when we come to BYU and that we have a right to hope for when we have enrolled here, that is, among faculty, staff, students, and administrators. We are, at least by the world standards, separatists, just like those earliest pilgrims were, sailing aboard our own Mayflower and determined to live a better way. Like they, we too feel we are on God's errand in the wilderness. On the 11th of November, 1620, when that first courageous little band touched land at Cape Cod, they, like we, signed a compact, quote, for the glory of God, the advancement of the Christian faith, and the general good of the colony, close quote. Every social or political experiment in history has had some such code or compact or constitution, written or implied, Christian or otherwise, upon which it is depended for its very survival, and we have one at BYU. Now, the success of our BYU experiment, like that of those first New Englanders, requires the best, everyone, the best effort of everyone whose name is on the parchment. Ben Franklin said it best to the signers of the Declaration 150 years later. He said, We must all hang together to his colonial friends, or assuredly we will all hang separately. The success we dream will take the best efforts of all who come here. It will never work otherwise, at least not fully and at least not well. It won't require abrasiveness or smugness or self-righteousness, but it will, inquire, it will require integrity and it will require work. Is every Christian expected to bear witness? asks George MacDonald. Is every Christian expected to bear witness? A man content to bear no witness to the truth is not in the kingdom of heaven. One who believes must bear witness. One who sees the truth must live witnessing to it. Is our life, then, a witnessing to the truth? Do we carry ourselves in the bank or the farm, in the house or the shop, in the study or chamber or workshop, as the Lord would or as the Lord would not? Are we careful to be true? Or are we mean, self-serving, world-flattering, fawning slaves? When contempt is cast on the truth, do we smile? When the truth is wronged in our presence, do we make any sign that we hold by it? I do not say, he goes on, that we are called upon to dispute and defend against falsehood with logic and argument. But we are called upon to show that we are on the other side. The soul that loves the truth and tries to be true will know when to speak and when to be silent. But the true man will never look as if he did not care. We are not bound to say all that we think. 
But we are bound not to even look like what we do not think. Close quote. Well, in the kind of Christian community that we anxiously pursue here, we must not even look like what we do not think or what we do not believe. And we must never look as if we did not care. That's why we make gentle reminders about dress and grooming. Every year at the start of school I see just a few, a very, very few, who have grubby or immodest clothing or hair that isn't trimmed or groomed, and I think, well, we've failed, at least early on, to help them understand what it is we're about at BYU. It is a part, however small, of the mission we have, the witness we bear, the colony we're creating. It's part of governing ourselves once correct principles have been taught and understood, and it is important in far more significant ways than dress and grooming, in far more private arenas of our lives. This reminder is, of course, directly applicable to all of us, beginning with the president of the university. If I robbed a bank this afternoon, or worse yet for you, embezzled the university's operating funds, would I be the only one punished? I might be the only one to get a jail sentence, but I wouldn't be the only one punished. No, you and my wife and my children and my colleagues, all of you, all of you would share in the shame and in the burden. BYU and the LDS Church would be severely punished, at least in the public mind, for a long, long time to come. That's unfair, you say. Well, I say what's fair about the death of David McNeese, Jr., 22-year-old newlywed. You see, we are all, in a sense, waiting at the station together. We each have our own hopes and plans and dreams, but by virtue of enrolling at BYU, we've stated at least our basic agreement as to which train we will ride and what special rules of conduct we'll obey as passengers. Of course, a drunk can stagger onto the platform, ride over the edge, and take with him needless, heart-rending, and unfair tragedy to his friends. Certainly not his enemies. His enemies would have left him there. And that can come almost before the trip has even begun. But the risk David McNeese took is the risk we all must take in a Christian community. Should then a faculty member at BYU write or say or teach or publish anything he or she wants and assume that's done without any impact upon colleagues in that department or that college or the university as a whole? Maybe that kind of intellectual isolation exists at some university, but it certainly doesn't exist at BYU. Can a manager on our staff be free with his ledgers or his supplies or his cash or his contracts and believe that he alone runs the risk of exposure? Maybe somewhere, but not at BYU. So it ought not to be any great surprise that we have expectations for you as students as well. There are no victimless crimes here. We do, at least in some very fundamental ways, hold all things in common, as did those early saints. Ask not for whom the old Y bell tolls. It tolls for thee. You don't really need here an introduction to Political Philosophy 101, and I'm not the one to teach it. But consider this early observation attributed to Socrates by Plato. 
Mankind at first lived dispersed, and there were no cities. Read universities if you wish. But the consequence was that they were destroyed by wild beasts. That has a lot of meaning, I think, for us. And they were utterly weak in comparison to them, and their art was only sufficient to provide them with the means of life and did not enable them to carry out war against these animals. Food they had, but not as yet any art of government, of which the art of defense is a part. After a while, the desire of self-preservation gathered them into cities or universities, but when they were gathered together, having no art of government, they evil entreated one another and were again in process of dispersion and destruction. Well, Zeus feared that the entire race would be exterminated, so he sent Hermes to them, bearing reverence and justice to be the ordering principles of cities and the bonds of friendship and conciliation. Well, Zeus may not have sent Hermes, but Brigham Young did send Carl G. Mazur that we might learn to live together in the bonds of friendship and conciliation, whether out of a desire for self-preservation like the Greeks or for the general good of the colony noted by the pilgrims, part of our education is to learn, wise, li learn to live wisely and responsibly together. Hell is being alone and self-centered and untrue. If enough understood that soon enough, and thus cherished rather than chafed under the human bonds that must be formed, then the whole world could be saved in something of a celestial colony, both here in time as well as in eternity. Now many of you, indeed most of you, make BYU just such a community of friends right now. I reluctantly speak of two or three or even sixty-seven who have problems during a year because I do so with the full realization that more than 25,000 of you are contributing to the common good at BYU and are, at least for the tasks at hand, as heroic in your way as David McNeese was in his. I think no students anywhere in this world live the lives of responsibility and example that you do at BYU. I salute you with all my heart. And you who are new today become part of a rare and rich tradition. Now we began by singing the school song. The words to that song were written by an early student at BYU, Annie Pike Greenwood. In 1909, as a non-member of the Church, she also wrote something else, a brief testimonial in response to one of her friends who had said, I think they must have spoiled you at Brigham Young. Reflecting on that comment, Annie wrote, it struck me forcibly that he was right. They had certainly spoiled me at Brigham Young, spoiled me as a mother spoils her child with kindness, encouragements, appreciation, and charity, spoiled me so that I can never be content to take anything but the best the world has to give, nor satisfied to give anything but the best that lies within me. By day and by night it comes upon me that I must fulfill all of which my teachers believe me capable." Close quote. What is the best that lies within us? Of how much are we capable? None of us knows, but that is part of the reason we've come to BYU. An old Arabic legend tells of a rider finding a spindly sparrow lying on his back in the middle of the road. 
He dismounted and asked the sparrow why his feet were in the air. Well, replied the sparrow, I heard the heavens were going to fall today. And I suppose you think your puny bird legs can hold up the whole universe, laughed the horseman. Perhaps not, said the sparrow with conviction, but one does whatever one can. In my appreciation for you, I suppose it is only fair to note that some of you probably do whatever you can in ways we might not fully encourage. <clears throat> President Dallin Oaks told me of an experience early in his administration. A prominent visitor to the campus was being hosted at a luncheon in the Wilkinson Center when he excused himself to visit the men's room. When the visitor returned, he looked dark and said with a tone of disappointment, Well, I've discovered you Mormons are just like everybody else. When I go to a public restroom, I usually find things written on the walls, and BYU is no exception. His totally abashed BYU hosts immediately tried to, ex to extend an apology, however lame. But as they stammered and stuttered, he burst out laughing. Don't worry, he said. It was confined to just one bold handwritten word, repent. <laughs> Perhaps the author of that was the fellow with the surfboard. Uh, we have all come to BYU for the general good of the colony, and you make it a wonderful place to be. Sister Holland and I love you with all our hearts. We thank you for the gift you've given us. I said at the outset that I wanted to speak of friendship in a way that transcended mere companionship. We do not want you to be lonely here, but more than that, we do not want you to be false. Of all who will one day stand in dismay, dis, in dismay and sickness of heart with the consciousness that their very existence is a shame, those will fare the worst who have been consciously false to their friends, who, pretending friendship, have used their neighbor to their own ends and especially those who, pretending friendship, have divided friends. To such Dante has given the lowest circle in hell. If there be one thing God hates, surely it must be treachery. I ask you to care for each other the way the David McNeeses of the world care. Don't play the part of the drunk. Leave BYU months or years from now better than you found it. Study hard. Make every semester count. You are here for an education. Like little Annie Greenwood, give the best that lies within you. This is no easy task. It is no convenient colonial duty. It will require much from you, and faithful friends are indeed a strong defense. I love you and welcome you back to school. You are my friends, Jesus said to his disciples, and with his own life gave them the love of which he said there is no greater. You are my friends, he said, if you do whatsoever I command you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. May this be the very best and the friendliest year of our lives, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the Classic Speeches Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. 
Please check out our other podcasts, including recent speeches, updated weekly with new talks given on BYU campus, as well as other speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.